Well, greetings, Exponential family, and welcome to The Hub. My name is Bill Kokenauer. I'm part of the Exponential team, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this webinar uh, on practical alternatives to fund your church plant. And this is actually part two of a series we're calling Missional Vibrancy and Financial Viability, which is uh, based on an exponential book by the same name by Dr. Jay Moon. And uh, Bruce is going to put that link in the chat. It's a free download from Exponential, so I would uh, encourage you to get that. And so today we're gonna be looking at some practical approaches to fund your church plant. And specifically, we're gonna be looking at six alternatives for you to consider. And our our guests who are uh, actually practitioners themselves, so this is more than just theory, um, will help you find an approach that that fits your unique context. And so with just that brief introduction, I wanna get right to it. Uh, It's an honor to be here with a couple of friends of mine, uh, Jay Moon and Mark DeMoss. Guys, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, you know how it is. It's always hard to know who's talking, but I'll just say, <laughs> yeah, it's great to be with Jay and, and you, Bill, of course, and uh, such a great topic and great friends. So thanks for having me. Sure. Good to have you here. Well, let me give you a little bit of background for those of you who don't know. Uh, Jay served his 13 years as a missionary, largely in Ghana, West Africa, where he focused on uh, church planting and water development. He's presently the professor of evangelism and church planting and the director of the Office of Faith, Work, and Economics at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, you've, uh, he speaks often uh, in areas of church planting, evangelism, and marketplace mission. And in addition to his teaching role, uh, and, and his role at Asbury, and then also a teaching pastor in a local church plant uh, and a church planting coach. He's also an entrepreneur with a handful of uh, small businesses, which we'll, we'll probably touch on, uh, I'm sure, today. And Mark DeMoz, uh, many of you would know him uh, uh, from, uh, he's a leader, recognized leader in the multi-ethnic church movement, and he planted Mosaic Church in, of Central Arkansas back in 2001, where he continues to serve as the directional leader. In 2004, he co-founded the Mosaics Global Network with Dr. George Yancey and continues to serve as the CEO and president and the convener of their triennial uh, Mosaics Conference. And he's written seven books, uh, including his latest, The Coming Revolution of Church Economics, Why Ties and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What You Can Do About It, which I'm sure we're going to touch on that as well today. Uh, and also uh, wrote Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church. And Mark and his wife, Linda, reside in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, guys, yeah, I want to uh, jump to this. So I know both you guys, and um, and I know that the, the topic that we're talking about today is a personal passion of yours, but why why so passionate about, about this? Talk, t- tell me a little bit about, you know, the, the passion, kind of what's behind the passion. Mark, you want to go ahead? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, again, uh, I, I'm thrilled. Jay and I are good friends, become good friends the last couple of years. So glad to be with you, Jay, on this call. So excited about this new resource from Exponential that you've produced and, and so helpful to continue to build and advance uh, this, what is no question going to be uh, a recognized movement within the American church, much needed in fact in the West as well. Just real quick, in my uh, case, it really boils down to three things. Uh, Bill, uh, first of all, advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, we want to advance the kingdom of God. Secondly, we've got to fund our mission. How are you going to fund your mission in the 21st century? But beyond that, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. It's also about sustaining my calling because I, I am called to full-time ministry. And, and as you all know, and I know Exponential's talked a lot about this and people, there's bivocational, nothing wrong with being bivocational. But if, I, if I've got to go drive Uber, let's say, I've got to take off my pastor hat in one moment, and then I've got to put on my Uber hat in another. And sure, you can talk about ministry, and I'm meeting people in the, in the car. Sure, I totally get that. And again, there's nothing wrong with being bivocational. And co-vocational, of course, is another topic altogether. And Jay writes about that. But I want to spend you know, 10, 12 hours a day, whatever. you know, I was up at 4.30 this morning. I want to be full-time engaged. In, in Christ-centered ministry, social justice work, mercy, compassion, and ultimately entrepreneurship for the sake of the kingdom. So all that's to say, without going to my story, I think to advance the kingdom of God in the 21st century, to fund bold mission, and ultimately to sustain my calling to full-time work, these are important topics and an important future. And Jay, Jay this I know this is a passion of yours as well. What Where does the 
the passion for sort of marketplace ministry and different economic models come from for you? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Again, it's great to be with you guys. And of course, Mark has been a good example of what we're talking about for many years. Uh, there's several things driving me here. Largely, it's a missional thrust. In other words, I know lots of church planters that want to, well, they have a, a God-given mission to transform a community, but they're stuck in raising funds in a way that they'll just never start. If they use a traditional model, they're going to have to raise about $700,000 for a three-year budget up front. And you just can't do that many churches like that. It just kind of throttles down any kind of movement dynamic. So what we're talking about today is, is simply not just making money so that the church can stay alive, but it's actually making sure the church has a missional footing. So the church has enough capacity to have a missional voice in the community. Um, you know, second, we know that innovation is needed in the church due to the closings that are happening uh, and the church plants that I've just mentioned that are not able to get a footing. The problem is, as people try to innovate and think outside the box, they're always dragged back into the traditional or inherited model because we're using a, a blockbuster financial model in the midst of a Netflix generation. In other words, we're stuck in this old financial model, and no matter how hard we try to innovate, we're always dragged back to what we came out of. Um, a third reason is I really feel, Bill, that, that um, the marketplace is this ripe mission context. You know, the late Billy Graham, he said one time that when revival comes to the U.S., it'll most likely come in the marketplace. So really, the church is like the sleeping giant. We're in the marketplace, but not recognizing the great potential that's there. And when we start to look historically in the early church, we realize the early church, yeah, there was a house church movement, but it was also a marketplace movement. And we're really not inventing anything new, but this is more like a renaissance to reconnect us back to what God has done early on in the church. So you feel like this, you know, kind of the, the American model of the church, really, we're, we're getting back to something that goes back to first century rather than moving into territory that the church has never experienced. Is that uh, is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. I mean, when we look at history, we find that uh, the church has been engaged in the marketplace throughout the centuries. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was a key pivot point because prior to that, where people worked and where they worshipped and where they lived were all very geographically close. When the Industrial Revolution comes, those get separated. But prior to that, we see people... Um, living and working and worshiping in a very similar context. And then we even notice like uh, biblically, when, whether it's Priscilla and Aquila or it's when uh, Paul stumbles upon uh, Lydia, we find that these places where people gather, we're in their homes, but those homes, the larger ones, were the ones where businesses were taking place. And it was just this like beehive of activity where you have supply chains coming in, distribution networks going out, and church planters live or die on networks. And when Paul saw that, he jumped upon it and, and leveraged that. So we're really going back to seeing with fresh eyes what Paul saw before the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, Bill, can I just jump in on that real quick? Because Jay took us to the word, which I'm so glad you did. And, and everything he said, of course, is true. A lot of that we have to uh, imagine. We get glimpses of that in scripture, but we have to imagine and understand uh, and he talked about this idea of rediscovering what's there in Scripture, and particularly New Testament as it applies to the local church. Uh, another way to look at that is understand this is not tangential to the New Testament church and or to the 21st century church. This is intrinsic for us, again, to advance a credible gospel, the kingdom of God, to be engaged in justice and compassion and mercy, to fund mission and to sustain our calling, as we've talked about. We have to, uh, I should say we have to, but in that scripture, for instance, you need all of you listening, understand this is solidly exegetical and theological from the New Testament. And we have to rediscover, reinterpret, if you will, verses that we've otherwise taken for granted, assumed we knew. For instance, what is good stewardship? Good stewardship in the American church essentially amounts to managing what you have. 
uh, taking care of what God has given you, accurately reporting tithes and offerings, uh, clearly communicating to your donors where the money's being spent. Essentially, that's managing. In the New Testament, you know what that's called? Sitting on your asset. In the story of the good steward, right? In the story of the good steward, what is good stewardship according to Jesus? You gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. You gave me two, here's your two, and I made you two. One guy sat on his asset. And the point is that he, that person was called a wicked, lazy steward. Uh, Jay talked about this. Imagine unleashing the billions, literally billions of dollars of unused or buried in the ground assets of the American church in terms of networking and people, finances, facilities to absolutely reshape the community. This could be done. One other quick verse, of course, that people say, we can't make money in the church. I mean, Jesus overturned the money changers. Again, rediscovering, re, uh, not really re, but really rightly interpreting what's going on. Jesus isn't against fair profit or generating some measure of benevolent profit in the church. What was going on there was unjust economics that were affecting the poor, particularly uh, with, with uh, conversion of Roman coinage to the Jewish shekel, charging outrageous interest for that, jacking up the price of a of a, a turtle dove or whatever. You know, it's like, why do you pay 10 bucks for a hot dog at a stadium? You're a captive audience. These are the kinds of things that were going on in the temple. Has nothing to do with fair or benevolent profit. Uh, it was about economic injustice. Those are just two verses, and I know Jay can add many more uh, of the New Testament. That we're it's it's like we need a, to understand those. We think we understand these things, but there's much deeper and richer uh, understanding that we need to exegete out of scripture related to this. And it's not like we have to eisegete it. It's there. We just got to pull it out. I love that. I love how you guys have gotten us started just really out of the word and out of going back to the first century, the roots of the first century church. And because I think that sometimes people that lean to entrepreneurial church planning or that um, are looking for alternative models feel like they're they're outside of, of the way you're supposed to do church. And, and I appreciate you guys setting, setting that up. Now we did, you know, the title of this is practical alternatives to fund your church plant. So if I'm a church planter, I'm on this webinar because I'm, I'm looking for practical alternatives. So where, where, uh, Jay, maybe you get us kicked off here. Where, where would someone start to find an alternative financial model for their church or their church plant? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, just to further a little bit, our, our previous thought there, Really, we're cooperating with the Missio Dei. Like, if God is on this all-out search to engage and to reach humanity and bring them back, what if the 20-something, the say millennials, Gen Z, are not coming to our churches, no matter how great our preaching, our programs, and our buildings are? The, the Missio Dei says, we need to go find out where they are. And if they're already gathering in coffee shops or wherever, let's find ways to engage them uh, as part of God's mission. Now, to get started, we uh, look at two important factors that we put on a grid in the book. The first is relational network access. As we mentioned before, uh, these networks are all important for church planters because when you run out of networks of people who are unchurched or dechurched, then your church plant basically stagnates. So you can imagine um, on a scale, um, on relational network access, anything from closed access to open access. And then we give some numbers to help people plot themselves on that scale. And then the second area we look at is financial liquidity. Now, that's the most business term I'm going to use on this session today. Liquidity just means how quickly can we convert things into cash. And uh, we use a quick equation called the quick ratio that is easy to use. Anybody can figure that out in about five minutes. Just look at your budget. And we show people how to get that number really quick. And, what, and you can think through on financial liquidity, everything from frozen assets to very liquid assets. And, and, what, and if you plot that on an X and Y chart, you'll get these four different quadrants and they help people to determine where's their best starting point. Because it's a very different situation if someone has like no cash at all, but very open network relationships, or, and I've met both of these, they have a lot of cash. They just don't have a lot of people they can connect with, right? So those are very different starting points. And what we do in the book is try to help people understand those factors and then give them a starting point where to jump into these six options. Otherwise, you know, they don't know where to start and they may get frustrated and just kind of give up. And Mark, what would you suggest they start? No. I'm sorry. Uh, 
I figure you're coming back to me. On that. <laughs> I, I, I was. Go right ahead. Yeah. Go right ahead. No, uh, you know, uh, I feel like we're on the NFL. Like it's a color. I'm the color commentary, <laughs> and, and you, you know, play by play from from Jay. But uh, but um, so everything I am sharing is stereo, and I'm sure uh, Jay feels the same way because we've had so much interaction about this. But um, uh, looking at it from a different angle, I I think you want to have a clear north star. And the North Star that I pitch in my book, Disruption, and of course, in the coming revolution of church economics, is getting away from a one-dimensional game to building a three-dimensional game. What do I mean? Consider the church, your local church, as an American football team. To win a big game, national championship, Super Bowl, uh, you have to have all your teams firing and functioning at a very high level synergistically at the same time or you don't win. What are those teams? Think about it. An American football team is actually a team of teams right? There's an offense, there's defense and special teams. Those are three distinct teams, each playing three distinct games. Uh, Those games are so different. The players who play those games never play on the field at the same time. Each team has its own coordinator. Each team has its own metrics. And again, if those three teams are not functioning uh, synergistically, minimizing mistakes, you don't win. You can score 40 points in a game on your offense, but if you can't stop the run, you don't win. You can have a great offense and defense, but if your field goal kicker with three seconds left, the snap goes bad, the kick misses, special teams has failed, and you lose the game. In the 20th century, we played a single-dimensional game. Everything was the spiritual game, if you will, right? So it's baptism, evangelism, et cetera, and all that's really good. So let's call that the spiritual playbook, and the church is the first leg of that three-legged stool uh, that's going to that's gonna do the spiritual work. But you're going to have to develop a second leg in the 21st century around social justice, compassion, and mercy work by what I suggest is developing a sister nonprofit, an umbrella nonprofit, won't go into the details, but you're going to need to move your justice, compassion, and mercy work under that nonprofit in order to generate local, state, federal grants, additional giving from other churches, et cetera, and lastly, you're going to have, have a for-profit or entrepreneurial arm where you're leveraging assets, people pro, uh, people and facilities, or the, uh, in terms of the networking, the people that Jay mentioned, your facilities, the money that you have and or that you can quickly aggregate in terms of liquidity, leverage those things to generate for-profit revenue in a benevolent way. We don't need top dollar, but if you keep giving everything away for free in your church, you're not going to be here in five years. So if you think about it, offense, defense, special teams, you think the spiritual, social, financial, you're developing multiple streams of income, again, to advance the kingdom, fund, bold mission, and ultimately to sustain yourself, uh, those that you care about, those that are otherwise called to full-time ministry. And so in terms of church planting, then what I suggest, and, and Jay's so much better than me in terms of the access and, and, and all that really at an assessment level. But generally speaking, from my perspective, you want to know what your North Star is. And that's the game you want to play over seven to 10 years to build out your offense, defense, special teams. And then you play with who you got. In other words, I've seen it across the board. Depending on who you know, your context, where you're at, what have you, you may start with the third leg, what I call the financial leg, or Jay would call the entrepreneurial leg. You may, in fact, start with the business side and then eventually get to the church side and the nonprofit. Or in my case, we started by building a healthy multi-ethnic church and then over time added the nonprofit and ultimately the for-profit leg. So you can start with any of those legs, but the important thing as a church planner is to have to know where you're going, to have that North Star, to clearly communicate that from the uh, at the front, and then again, play with what you got. Take a look at your context, start where you are, bloom where you're planted, so to speak, but again, with the vision ultimately to build out the offense, defense, special teams, uh, to win the big game, so to speak, advance the kingdom, fund mission, sustain your calling in the 21st century. Yeah. So I'm so I'm a church planner. I'm listening to this and and I'm on board. Like I'm I'm relieved now to find out I'm not, you know, way out over here in my thinking. I'm I'm really in line with where the church is. I'm I'm bought into the idea, even the three, the three-legged stool, even. But uh, and and Jay, you talked a little bit about where we start. Maybe maybe the next thing would be what what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives that I should consider? And then maybe Jay, we can um, if you can give us an explanation of that, then we can get into kind of uh, specifics on on uh, actual applications in each of those. Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, you know, Mark had a very important uh, topic. He just he he briefly mentioned it's the whole concept of team. 
So when we're talking about these different models, I want that word team to be a, like a subtitle because it's not simply about having like an all-star quarterback. You also need to have other players in the game, which is actually really exciting because as we start talking about some of these models, there are people that you may know, even if you're not an entrepreneur yourself, there are people that you may know that, that like they have some background in accounting or in finance or organizational planning, and they have no idea that the very gifting they have is what is needed in church planting and that they can have a front seat on the church planting table. Right now, they think their, their vocation is simply to raise money to like finance the church without knowing the very assets and gifts and skills that they have can be utilized as a team in one of these approaches. So the, the six approaches we're going to talk about today, um, the first one is monetizing underutilized assets. And we'll describe that a bit. And, and actually, Mark already talked to us about that with the, the title, like, don't sit on your assets. Um, the second one is to incubate new business. Okay? And the third is nonprofits can form mission arms of the church, as uh, Mark already articulated. And the third is co-vocational leadership. Um, by the way, I consider myself to be a co-vocational pastor as part of a team of four others. Um, so that whole team concept is embedded, not just there, but in all these. And then the fifth one is entrepreneurial church planting, where we either start a business to create a venue for a church plant or um, recognize an existing business where people are already gathering and leverage that for a church plant. And then the, the sixth one is decentralized church. So this is, has lots of names, whether it's micro church or their simple church, organic church, et cetera. But it's thinking of ways that the decentralization of the church keeps the budget much lower than if everybody comes into one location. So those are the six options we're going to talk about. Well, good. I, I want to get into each one of those. But I, Mark, I want you to I want to kick off the first one with you. In fact, one of your uh, a quote, one of my favorite quotes from your book, which I said, I think you appeared in a prior quote, but it says it's long past time for churches to stop building facilities on islands of land entirely to themselves and start planning for mixed-use development from which the entire community can benefit. In doing so, literally, the church can be built into the community, become incarnate with the community, and by leveraging resources and assets, generate income that can potentially pay for the project. You've done a lot of, I mean, talk about what you've done specifically and just um, some, uh, so to give people kind of an idea of what we're talking about with this first idea of monetize existing church re uh, resources. Yeah. And uh, the way I hear that, and Jay knows that, that I, I you know, from our perspective, the, the six that Jay has embeds several, uh, the first three of a book, he expands on that. It's all really good. I think about it like uh, in, in terms of uh, at a macro level, I think about it where you're trying to generate uh, additional streams of income, create multiple streams of income by uh, b becoming a benevolent owner. That's with your facility. Uh, of course, church planners don't often have a facility. That's another discussion. I can tell you how you can get a facility by practicing this model. Uh, but the other thing is monetizing existing services, things you're doing, and ultimately starting new businesses. And Jay has those three and more in the six. So all that's to say is it took us, and we were a church plant, it took us 12, uh, let's see, 2001 to 2016. So 15 years to get our own building. So when I say what I'm saying, I want people to know, you know, they go, well, if I had a hundred thousand square foot abandoned Kmart, I could do this too. It took us 15 years and more specifically 12 years to, to flesh that dream out to the where, where we are, but we did it in microwaves. Well, then except we this. Part, of, part of what I like though, about what we're doing with this and your book, Jay, and this example is I think we're giving people uh, some ideas that they can use right away and, and even shorten those time. Cause this is stuff you've learned over time. And totally. so- yeah. yeah, that we're trying to help you work smart, avoid mistakes, gain credibility, and do it quick. Uh, do it much quicker than than I certainly have done. Uh, but all that's to say, I'll give you an example. So the the easiest, simple way, really, at a first level in terms of monetizing your assets, is rent and leverage your facility. That's the simplest way to make money is rent your space. And I love the quote that you quoted of me because yes, it's about embedding the church in the community, or you could say it the other way, embedding the community into the church. In real time, this answers your question and shows you what I'm talking about. I, right here, I got 2,000 square feet right to my right. It's called the Commons. It's a small stage. Uh, it seats about 100 people. 
Uh, yesterday, the governor formed a nonprofit six years ago to work with uh, people, felons coming out of incarceration to get them into work. Make a long story short, that head of that nonprofit sat here yesterday. I took him in there. They're going to move 10 caseworkers in. We're building out the offices. We're doing all this work and they'll be operational by March 1st. It'll pay us rent. Uh, I don't know what the, the rent will be, but it's pretty significant in the thousands of dollars. And, and I could go on and on about that. I go home to my wife last night. She goes, we're losing the commons. Where are we going to, where's the church? Like, and I go, this is the church. You see what I'm saying? Because I got an immigration law office right to my left. We're going to have this, uh, the resource center for the prison uh, work pipeline. Um, we've got uh, a 48,000 square foot uh, that we rented to a suburban health club and brought them in. So in, in all of this, think about a mall. I mean, that's not what we have, but I mean, imagine a mall that's owned by a church and, and the church is just one of the stores in the mall. And when you come into the mall, you, you see there's a clothing shop, there's a grocery store, there's this, there's that. Oh, and there's also a church, but the church owns the whole thing and the rent rolls are paying for the whole thing, even to the point, not only your mortgage, but maybe you're making some money on the deal. So uh, all that's to say on that first point, the simplest way to generate income initially is leverage your space. These buildings sit empty, as we all know, from Monday to Saturday. That was long before COVID. We buried this asset. And that is certainly an asset that we've got to get working for us. But again, what Jay said, in a missional way, because now we've got felons and all this will be coming in. I got immigrants, 10,000 since 2005. And then they come to the church and they come to the church building, I should say, for all these professional services, et cetera. And, and then they, there's much more that they get and they find out about. And of course, whether we're feeding people or doing immigration work, it's all spiritual. It's all the work of Jesus. You also, if I remember correctly, this goes back a couple of years ago now, but didn't you start a cleaning company? Yeah, well? well, yeah, I recommend in the book, that's one way. So, so think about this. That's why there's a little nuance to this leveraging your building by renting it. Simply put, renting space in your building uh, to think. And by the way, I got called by call centers. Uh, I'm not renting space to a call center. You see, it's got to be good. It's got to fit the mission. It's got to enhance the community. So I'm not out like a mercenary, but okay. So being a benevolent owner is renting space, not at top dollar, but it encourages small business. You make a profit. The idea of the cleaning company is where you're monetizing something you're already doing. So a lot of churches are serving free coffee on a Sunday morning. What if that gets monetized in, in different ways? We talk about in the book, I'm sure Jay does too, I won't go into it now, but the cleaning company is another thing. So let's just say I'm making it up. Maybe your church is paying 25, 30,000 a year, 50,000, who knows, to, for some service to clean your building. Well, what if you take that money and you exactly what Jay said. By the way, pastors, you don't have to figure all this out. There, God's you want to build a team, right? I'm, I'm the head coach, maybe, or I'm the general manager, but I position these offensive, defensive coordinators. So I take that forty thousand a year. You give it to business people who know what the heck to do with it, and then they start a cleaning company. Five jobs are created, and then the, that cleaning company goes out and gets twelve contracts generates net profit beyond salaries and everything of 40,000 and your building's cleaned for free. All right. Through the year. And you recoup $40,000 of tithes and offerings to repurpose to more direct ministry. So that kind of idea of monetizing a coffee shop or taking the money to create a cleaning company, things you're already doing, but you're not thinking about it in a way to generate income. You can spin those, if you will, repurpose or reposition those works to actually generate income. Real quick, coffee shop. We, we have a coffee shop, like a lot of places. I mean, a coffee you know, place uh, and all that. How do you monetize that? Man, go buy Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits for 85 cents a biscuit, heat them up in a microwave. You pay 254, wrap them in tinfoil. If, let's say you're spending 3,000 a year on free coffee, sell 3,000 biscuits, you make a buck a biscuit, and now you've got $3,000 to give to your VBS in the summer. We don't think like that. Nobody taught us that in seminary, right? Uh, to, to think like this. And again, we, we don't have to do it all. We just have to understand it all. We have to understand the why and the basics of how, and then connect with those, with those business leaders, people that have experience and free them up and empower them and say, look, I'm, I'm burning 10,000 a year in free coffee, Bill. You, you used to be in business. Could you get in there 
and, and turn that thing around. Most of us as pastors, we take strong business leaders and we go, hey, would you be a greeter? You know, I mean, what, what did you just do? You made that guy an employee in your company. Or we go, hey, we, we got this moving parts of first impressions. Can you kind of organize that, Bill? I know you ran a company. Can you kind of organize? All I did was make you a manager. Business leaders, these entrepreneurs, they don't want to be employees and managers. And it, it, that's the wrong approach. I want to go to Bill. Look, I'm losing 5000 a year out of that coffee shop. You think you can turn that around? Let them own this thing. And that's how you make the monetize those services like we're talking about with the janitor company. I love it. I love it. Uh, I, I feel like with this call, you know, especially with starting with kind of the, the, the scriptural background of this, that we're giving people that an, uh, they're a door into this whole other world, this whole other way of thinking and, and giving them authority to walk through that. But uh, we're also, um, if, if anything, at the end of this webinar, you'll know, you'll know how to equip a football team too. So we <laughs> kind of pretty calm. But Jay, what, you, did you want to add to what Mark was saying? There? Yeah, yeah. I hope that what our listeners are feeling is this excitement about this whole innovation. I meet with entrepreneurs regularly, and every time I meet, it's just this kind of like buzz, um, just exciting time. There's a lot of laughter, and if there's not like enjoyment in this, we're doing it wrong. But what you find is that the church may not even realize like the assets that they're sitting on in order to engage us in mission again. Like everybody bemoans the, the fact that millennials and Gen Z are not coming into our churches. Well, one church recognized that and they had space, as Mark was saying, a Sunday school room that was only used on Sundays, right? So they said, well, what if we turn that into a work collective and invite these millennials in the gig economy to um, pay us good money, you know, 50 to 100 bucks a month, whatever. And they, once they opened it up, they had like 22 people signed up. And all of a sudden now the church is in mission to these millennials that are in the gig economy that thought the church was not really relevant in their lives. So the church took another step and said, well, okay, why don't we have some um, monthly or, or regular training about things like uh, taxing, you know, how to, how to work out taxing, valuation, um, ideation, you know, product marketing, et cetera, stuff that nobody knows all of that about, but these like millennials in the gig economy are excited about, and now they see the church as being relevant, and all the church did was open up space that is just sitting there. It's being heated and cooled all week, and now they're finding ways to engage missionally in their community, and it also provides this financial sustainability by this uh, financial stream that comes in. So, my hope is that people uh, just get this holy imagination stirred again, that they start to realize that God has made us creative. And instead of like sitting on our assets, let's be creative. Because as Mark mentioned, no business would operate the way the church does in the sense that your building stays vacant six days out of seven. Um, I think the only or the major reason is that we've had this real estate you know, tax break. In other words, we're excluded from uh, property tax. That may be taken away, and, and Mark has mentioned that previously. If that is taken away, then churches are most likely going to be pushed to think more creatively how to utilize their assets. Right now, we've just been a bit sloppy, but, but my hope is that people catch this kind of innovative, uh, creative type environment to rethink the church in ways that are missionally getting us uh, in, in God's step, but also sustainable. That's that's what I like about this. We're 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 actually merging some things here. Maybe uh, this conversation has reminded me. I met with a church planter in San Antonio years ago, and at the north end of the Riverwalk, one of the the tallest office buildings there, uh, typical you know marble and glass two story narthex. You walk in a lot of I guess the top law firms and are there. But if you take the elevator up, to, I think it was the eleventh floor, the door opens and you say it says welcome to geekdom. And, and it was people that had seen the brain drain out of San Antonio and created sort of a, you know, a health club for, you know, so to speak. And you could pay different levels of membership. And there was a, there was a recording studio and there was, a, you know, just different labs, a robotic lab in there. But this church planter um, had an office there that he shared with two other people. And, and just the sharing part of that. But you, I've thought about, you know, a church. Now, not only are you having an income generating kind of um, 
entity, but you actually are engaging the church with the, with the marketplace as well. And I, that's what I like about the, some of the examples that you're sharing. That's great. Well, um, nonprofits as a mission arm of the church. Um, Jay, talk a little bit about that. And then, and Mark, I'd love to you know, talk a little bit more about what you're doing there at Mosaic. Yeah, to be honest, uh, the Vine and Village that Mark will talk about is probably one of the best examples I know of. But just in, in brief, what can happen is the nonprofit can um, serve a missional need in the community and it can receive grants and funding in ways that churches cannot. So in other words, it becomes the mission arm of the church to address different issues in the community. And instead of it having a negative cash draw on the financial budget of the church, it's actually like even, and it can actually be a positive one. So like if the nonprofit rents uh, or yeah, rents space from the church, the church can then receive that rental income at a fair value such that it even becomes uh, a positive income stream. But, but the exciting thing again is this is now helping the church become missional, like to engage the needs of their community without you know, draining the financial budget it actually becomes either an even line or like a, a positive cash flow for the church to create all kinds of goodwill in the community. And like I said, Vine and Village was incredible. Even during the COVID event, I want to hear Mark talk a little bit about it because I was tracking with what uh, Mark and Paul were doing there and just saying, wow, amidst COVID, this nonprofit kept the church functioning in a really positive way. Yeah, yeah Mark, tell us about that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll I'll give again the color commentary. I'll I'll just tell you about uh, how uh, this nonprofit works in real time for us uh, with the background of theory and the understanding that Jay just laid out. So in 2005, knowing what we knew, which was the more people that joined our church, it actually cost us money. We're not going to be able to meet the needs of the community unless we generate additional revenue streams beyond tithes and offerings. So uh, we opened an immigration counseling center. We uh, Today, we have the largest food distribution in Little Rock, uh, third largest in Central Arkansas, but we started uh, with, with food distribution. And then a, a young man in my church had a vision to work with kids who age out of foster care. And when those three things aligned in roughly 2003 or four, that's when we formed a nonprofit. Of course, the church is a nonprofit, but then we grouped these three programs that you might otherwise uh, structure under the church, uh, we group them under a separate nonprofit. Now, we call that an umbrella nonprofit. Each of those three programs could, in fact, be their own nonprofit. But if you create three nonprofits, that's three tax returns, three offices, three copiers, it's not a smart play. So, in the business world, it's called a uh, holding company. But what this is, is in the, in the social leg, that second leg of the stool, that's nonprofit, ours is called Vine and Village. It becomes an umbrella nonprofit under which you can have as many programs as you want. And the IRS sees Vine and Village the nine, as the nonprofit, but all these programs, which today in Vine and Village, we have roughly 10 currently, they all operate as if they're, they are nonprofits and they are part of a nonprofit, but separately they're not. And the point of all that is that by creating a separate nonprofit, if you're an existing church, I know we're talking about church planners, back to the North Star, but one way or another, you want to, you want to move your justice work, your compassion work, your mercy work out from under the budget of a church and put it under the budget of this umbrella nonprofit run by an executive director and a separate board. There's ways to keep synergy and, 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 and uh, avoid mission drift by doing that. So trust us, that can be done. But you get this other nonprofit working for you. And as Jay alluded to, that's how you generate local, state, federal grants. That's why other churches will give you money to support these programs. They'll send people to you. Literally right now, as we speak, as our homeless community is being fed their Thanksgiving meal out there, uh, 30 workers from another church brought tons of food and are a big part of serving. It's actually a Methodist church. They're in there serving because that work is done not under Mosaic Church, but under Vine and Village. Uh, it's ironic, you know, churches don't write church, uh, other churches checks, they just don't do it. But other churches send us checks for food distribution, for our at-risk award-winning chess club, for immigration counseling. So not only in terms of financial resources through grants and donations, but people resources when you structure that way. And if you leave it under the church, 
See, you're limited. So let's say I got these three programs that are under my little church. I'm giving 100, 200 bucks a month to these programs. They get a little stage time. We're trying to recruit people to work. But at a certain point, then the fourth or the fifth person comes along and goes, hey, I, I got this vision to do this. You know, oh, I'm sorry. We just don't have any more money. We, we can only put so many things before the body to ask for volunteer. So if you leave your justice, compassion, and mercy work under your church, at some point, you're capped. You can't scale it. You, you're out of money. You're out of room. You can't recruit any more volunteers. So again, if you shift that oh, under a second leg under the nonprofit, as Jay mentioned earlier, it opens up all these new windows, doors, and possibilities for funding, for resources, for engagement with the community. And as Jay said, and I love that you brought that out, Jay, there's such a net positive on this in so many ways. He mentioned rent. Our immigration counseling office, they pay like five, 600 bucks a month. It's not tons of money, but it's about 660 square feet of space that was the dumpiest space in the building. And we turned it into to this law office in legal immigration counseling. So we're generating income from that. One time we got a grant from the state. $25,000. It was to support our food distribution. It was for pallet jack, uh, you know, pallet jack drivers and tables. And, and even as a part of that grant, it paid for one year for all the trash collection. Now, just think that's a little thing, no big deal, but okay. Well, because Vine and Village, we, and by the way, you don't set this nonprofit up 10 miles from your church. It, it, it functions and lives within your church as two sisters live in the same house. Okay, well, who's when when the tables weren't being used on Tuesdays to distribute food, who's using those tables? The church didn't pay for garbage collection that year because legitimately the grant paid for that because we share the space. So there's all these little things that can add up from big and small ways uh, when you function like that. The last thing I'll say right now, again, in real time, eight weeks ago, our state has one hundred and sixty seven million dollars for post-COVID to bring the community, bring buildings back, HVAC, infrastructure, you name it. And, and a state senator who goes to my church took me to the number two guy in the state on finance. And basically, he, the first thing the guy says, he sits down, he goes, man, it's hard to give away money. They can't find qualified uh, organizations who are doing the work who meet the things for this grant. So then we say, well, what, what's going on in the grant? And he goes this, and we go check. And he goes this, we go check. And we he wrapped on the list. It's everything we've been doing for 20 years. Okay. And, and so all that's to say is the second thing he said was this, after it's hard to give away money, the number two thing, he goes, now, is this a church? And I said, no, it's a nonprofit. And he goes like this. Whew. See what I'm saying? Because it's yeah. a community development corporation, because none of that money is going to go to a church. So we wrote a grant. I mean, we're, we're in the process working with them. Literally, I'm supposed to hear from them any second today. $4.8 million. That's what we're applying to this, this fund for. The Boys and Girls Club just got $6.5 million. And I can tell you, they don't do, they, they do great work, but we do like 10 times the stuff they're doing. Okay. And my point is whether we get 4.8 or 1.2, it doesn't matter. We are likely through our nonprofit and because of our nonprofit, we're going to get significant money to advance the, to advance our mission, which ultimately advances the kingdom of God. I can go on and on, but one last thing, this guy that starts the program for aging out of foster care. Okay. He comes in and, and for two years, he's like fighting with our board going, you guys got to raise us money. You people got to raise. And said, so that's not our job. We're central services. There's no silver bullets. You got to get after it. Once that sunk into him, he got after it, put a team together, applied for an $800,000 federal grant, got it. It ran that program for five years. It recurred another $800,000. And within five years, the budget of that one nonprofit program under Vine and Village, the program here, it's called Immerse Arkansas, works with kids who age out of foster care. Within seven years, the budget of that little line item program was $1.2 million, the exact same budget of our entire church. And after 10 years, we had to move them up the street and they're on their own now. It was a 10-year incubation. Those are the things that are possible when you, again, at a North Star level structure that nonprofit in the way Jay and I are advocating. And you, you started that nonprofit before you had a building. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So you don't and, and, have to have a bill. This is something that a church planter could do from day one. 
day one, day one, you don't need a building. And since you're on that point, let me, I don't want to monopolize the time, but this is an important thing. You brought it up earlier, Bill, for church planners. You don't have a building. You know how you can get a building? Uh, there's multiple ways. But what if you go out and find some building, some maybe a little five uh, deals, a little strip mall, whatever, right? You find this building, okay? And, and you go out and there's business people who will buy that building or invest with you and partner with you. And what if four stores and there's a fifth store, think of a little strip mall, let's say, okay? Those four stores create rent rolls and the rent roll pays for your fifth. You buy the shopping center with an investor or two, they buy it, they get the ROI, they give you the building for free, your little fifth thing, but they work it out where you own the building. And in time, those rent rolls are paying for the entire mortgage and you got your your space, if you will, for free. Um, I have I worked on that. Now, in my case, I never executed that. I tried, I was so close three times on the Kmart, but it didn't work in my case, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. It, it's just not how it worked for me, but it can work. And I'm sure Jay can wax eloquent on that. Yeah. Jay, anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, so right now, one of the um, things that people, the business people are bemoaning is the fact that the online traffic is like taking away from the big box stores. And therefore, a lot of these face-to-face uh, -face stores are closing up. So in other words, this is a really good time to think to do exactly what Mark is talking about. You can get a really good deal on some real estate right now that can be utilized for a church plant. Now, it may not look like a church, but it's situated inside of a strip mall or some other location that people are eager to go to. Now, the whole nonprofit world is so ripe for churches because, for one, since a church is a nonprofit, they know the tax filing and the, um, the meetings that need to happen. And for two, churches often have like a highly qualified volunteer captive audience. There's lots of people in churches that know how to do the things that Mark was talking about, whether it's their law degree, their engineering, their accounting, whatever. And if a nonprofit gives them an, uh, an opening, then they can utilize their skills for kingdom potential. And the third thing is that churches often have the trust of a community. Therefore, if a nonprofit is located inside or connected to a church, people are more likely to trust that startup than something they don't know about. So, that those are three good reasons that, that churches really, it's ripe for churches to think about the whole nonprofit world. And instead of just um, skewing that and looking at other approaches, this nonprofit approach really, again, gets us back engaged into mission. So think of all of the important things that Mark just described and think through how the church is able to, through a nonprofit, engage those. And there are people that are willing to give to a nonprofit that would not give to a church, but this helps the church to once again gain in mission, but stay uh, financially sustainable. A church plant, down, downtown Denver, a church plant, uh, they identified a property to buy a small uh, building, couldn't afford it, went in with a nonprofit, split it. So the nonprofit owns half the building, the church owns half the building, they function synergistically. Uh, in our case, we didn't have a building. Finally, after all these years, 2012, we put uh, uh, $200,000 down, locked up this old 100,000 square foot Kmart, and then within a year attracted a suburban fitness club. We bought the property. Check this out, Bill. $1.7 million. It was only worth $1.5. We were able to put $600,000 down, lock it up, but we couldn't afford to get in it. One year later, we found... Uh, a suburban fitness club, drew them to the inner city. We gave them 50,000 square feet at $2 a square foot. They put 1.7 million into the building on infrastructure. Within uh, two and a half years, the building's value jumped from 1.5 million to 3.9 million because of that investment. And that's when we had the equity to go get our loan and build out 35,000 square feet and get ourselves into this space. So again, there's several ways to skin the cat, but do not give me the excuse if you're a church planner. Oh, well, if I had a building, listen, if you can't do it with a ball, you will never be able to do it with a building. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to hit on the fact that, that a lot of what you did in these nonprofits was well ahead of, of when you had the building. And Jake, uh, something else I want to hit on before um, I want to make sure we hit on here is entrepreneurial church planning. And part of what I love about the way that you're living your life, you, you're 
you actually are a co-vocational pastor. Your, your, your full-time salary comes from the work that you do at Asbury Theological Seminary, but you're also a pastor, one of several um, at a church where you don't draw a salary from, but you also have some, uh, you're an entrepreneur. You've started some other businesses as well. So could you kind of speak to this idea of entrepreneurial church planning? I think there are uh, maybe some um, church planters that do have that entrepreneurial gifting that could really move into something like that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, so a recent study was done which showed 61% of college grads want to start a business after they graduate, and 45% say that it's very likely. And then 20% already have started a business prior to graduation. So when we start to talk about entrepreneurship for like millennial, Gen Z, they are already leaning into it. It's not a hard sell. And what if we say, uh, gather the entrepreneurs in your, your friendship network, et cetera, and ask them to think through, how could you engage a community that are unchurched or de-churched through an entrepreneurship? So uh, Paul Unsworth was in London, England, and he said 20,000 people went down this street every Sunday with no witness of a church at all. There was some guy on the corner talking about true Islam, so to speak, but no Christian witness. Uh, in that section of town, about 2 to 3% attend church regularly. So what he did, he opened up this um, sweet treats kind of coffee shop type of thing. And that then served uh, a large number of people coming down the street. It also serves a venue on Wednesday night where he hosts his church plant. And here's what he said in the first year of opening it. He said, I've had more conversations with people who are not yet followers of Jesus in one week than I had in a whole year working inside of a church. Mm. So just think that through a little bit. Um, what can happen is once the church gets started, it's often the whole machinery, keeping that machinery running, that takes us out of the world of unchurched and de-churched people. But what the entrepreneurship does, it does what business does really well. If you create value, people will come to you. So I have these tree houses that we've started, and then people come to us. And as they do, it puts you in real relationships with people that you start to provide spiritual value into their lives. So it's not like knocking on doors to get people to come to your church. You're creating value where they come to your door, right? So what that does is it recognizes the value of the marketplace as a missional setting. A former president of Asbury Seminary used to say that God outwits us. <laughs> so in other words... You, you start a coffee shop, you think it's just to make money, but what happens is it creates this whole relational network, and through that, that becomes the venue for a church plant. Now, this is gaining traction around the world. I was talking to a guy from the Netherlands the other day who started a, a barbershop. I know people that have done like a fitness facility, uh, spin classes, um, you know, all kinds of different. It's just really up to your own creativity, but it's thinking through the value creation, and then leveraging that to great, create a network of people upon which the church can be planted. Now, and if you can't start your own business, just think about where you're already working. It may be you're working at a Home Depot or you're working at um, someplace that there's a friend of ours that has a church plant that he meets 11 p.m. on Thursday nights because he works all week with these uh, servers and waiters and waitresses, and they get off work Thursday night. And that becomes when their church plant meets. In other words, he didn't start another business, but he utilized his own business where he's, where he's working as an employee uh, as a missional setting. So whether you start a business to create a venue or utilize your existing business, that's what entrepreneurial church planning is all about in order to reach unchurched and de-churched people that are not coming to the church building. And, you know, it's hard to imagine, right? But I was talking to a guy the other day and he said, Suppose the imam came to you and said, I want you to come to our mosque because we have really good teaching. We have programs for all your kids, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I have to admit, there's nothing he's going to say that's going to tempt me to go into that mosque. And that's when the guy said, that's how millennials often feel about the church. There's nothing you're going to say to tempt them to come in. So instead of waiting them to come in, that cooperating with God's Missio Dei says, let's go where they are or where they will gather. And that's what entrepreneurial church planning tries to do. That's great. But, you know, I'm thinking about that. This is incredibly exciting to me, you know, and why do you think 
why is this not talked about more? Why is there, you know, why isn't this part of the norm of, of church planting, of, of um, moving into, of just even, you know, building an ecosystem into the, the fabric of a city this way? Yeah, let me uh, jump on that real quick. And I know, Jay, we've talked about this, the erroneous sacred secular divide, right, that, that is often found within Christendom, within the pastorate, within the seminaries, the sacred secular divide certainly is one of the erroneous, I should say, sacred secular divide. It's all spiritual. For instance, this isn't on the business side, but in the nonprofit, when we have hundreds and hundreds of people every Tuesday in this community, 67% of the entire zip code gets three to four days of groceries every single month from this church, uh, supplements the WIC program, et cetera. Sometimes pastors, literally Tuesday, I had a group of Missouri pastors in to look at the, to that. People say to us all the time, how many of these people go to your church? You know what I say to them? Every one of them. Every single one of them. There is no divide. You know what I'm saying? So the way we worship God and we are his hands and feet on Sunday is different than Tuesday or today or whatever. So in that same business, erroneous sacred secular divide. The other thing, I'm sure there's many others, and Jay uh, can easily weigh in on it, but I think the insecurity of pastors with literally so many to this point, zero experience in the marketplace. They've never done anything else. We certainly weren't taught it in seminary. And, and that leads to, an to a certain level of insecurity. And that insecurity keeps us divided and, uh, from, from that type of engagement. We don't know what to do with successful business folks. So we make them employees or managers in our company and they'll do it because they want to serve God, hey, whatever the pastor, but that's not the best use of passion, gifting, et cetera, right? So I think that that level of uh, lack of education in one sense, uh, a lack of experiential knowledge, insecurity, personal insecurity, and the erroneous sacred secular divider, certainly four reasons right off the top of my head. I know, Jay, you could probably add to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, uh, the, often what I hear from people say, well, what about the taxes? You know, like, don't I need to get a complicated taxing situation? And we usually say to people, well, just pay the tax, right? And there, there's something called UBIT, unrelated business income tax. Get an accountant to take care of that. Don't let that be the thing that scares you away. That's all very workable. Um, another reason I think sometimes people shy away from it is they've seen maybe bad examples of people looking at a single bottom line. So uh, I coach people to think through a triple bottom line. In other words, just because a business deal can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Instead of just looking at the financial profit as the single determinant of whether you should do a business deal, consider the social capital that's either gained or lost or the spiritual capital either gained or lost. And those three make up any kind of business deal so that we're not um, beholden to the excesses of the free market system. You know, I love free trade, but we can easily slip into um, justifying things if we just use a single bottom line. So uh, teaching people about how business can be benevolent and how it can be uh, just by thinking through ways to do business that's equitable, that considers not just single bottom lines, but you know, social and spiritual capital. I think there's some other things. Um, you know, I do some coaching and I know Mark does as well to help uh, people think through these different options. I often turn to John Wesley, who people know as a, a great you know, theolo theologian and scholar, but they may not realize that he was a businessman that made in today's money about five to six million dollars. So he actually was rather successful. And he gives several guidelines to help people think through um, how to do business well. One of those is accountability. He said, make sure you find people that you're accountable to. And what he would ask people is to get into these regular meetings, these band meetings, and ask each other this question, how much money did you make this week? And what did you do with it? Right? So in other words, there's some accountability in that. We can really easily deceive ourselves. So having some accountability can help. Uh, but also Wesley talked about generosity. Like you said, don't let money find a resting place in your soul. Make sure that there's a generosity. The generosity is not simply for our neighbor. It is for them, but it's also for us because if it finds a resting place in our soul, it, it does some things that are unhealthy. They call it currency because it wants to move like current in a river. So in other words, find ways to be generous in that. And, you know, we do at Asbury Seminary talk about these different financial approaches 
And it often gives people a breath of fresh air. They say, wow, I had no idea that the work I did before I came to seminary really is relevant to this whole church and church planning world. It almost gives them like a second look at what they did before. Because what they heard before was, if you want to be really spiritual, either be a missionary or a pastor. (laughs) And now we're saying there's other options. You can be in ministry inside of your own vocation in order to glorify God through that. So part of that is reshaping what we call vocation, this holy calling, and finding it uh, in the marketplace, not outside of it. Yeah, I, I love that. And you know, Mark, you had mentioned the the, the kind of sacred secular divide, and the other one, the other divide that it, you know I would love to see changed is this clergy lady divide. You know, this idea that there are two classes of people that serve. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I think there should be vocational clergy. I'm grateful for vocational clergy, but, you know, t- for helping everyday life Christ followers understand, though, no, you're, you're actually a full-time pastor, you're a full-time missionary and, and God's equipped you. I think if, as we, as people begin to see that, have that vision, uh, for themselves, they will see, um, so much more creativity, uh, in this as well. Uh, well, man, I, guys, I've appreciated this time. If they want to, if they want to contact you, uh, Mark, what's the best way for them to reach you if somebody has a question for you? Yeah, uh, really. In light of this conversation, let me steer folks to a website: ceeprograms.com. Ceeprograms.com. That is uh, Jay mentioned coaching. We have uh, three module courses, all set up to literally from assessment all the way to the end to help you do exactly what Jay and I are talking about. But there's a button on there, click for a conversation, and and that'll go to me and my colleague, Dan Davidson out in California. So uh, go visit ceeprograms.com. Appreciate it. And and Jay, what's the best way for people to reach you if they'd like to reach out? Yeah, my email address, real simple, w at moons, M-O-O-N-S.com. Um, at Asbury Seminary, you know, we have a focus on church planting. We talk about these alternate models. Um, we also have the Office of Faith, Work, and Economics, which helps people to recognize the, the marketplace as a mission context. So those are areas we're exploring. And uh, people like Exponential and Mosaics, Mark and you, Bill, have been great partners in this. And we think that the best is yet to come, that as people start to get permission, so to speak, and start to experiment, do what they love to do. There, there are ideas that we haven't even seen yet. We just see the tip of the iceberg at this point. Yeah. Jay and Bill, I know we're out of time. Can I just say one other thing? One sure. thing we haven't talked about, and I just want to throw it out there, not in a talk, uh, a long talk about it, but I just want to throw out a caution. Um, and, and that is that just like in business, Jay, you could probably quote, like, I don't know what, four out of 10 businesses don't even make it out of the first year. There are no silver bullets. I really want you all to hear that. There are no silver bullets in this. This is hard work. It's work that it's not easy to do. Um, you have to stay on it. So I just want people to have a realistic, oh, hey, we'll monetize our coffee shop. I, I can tell you I've written in books the, the things that I've started out to do that don't work out, right? So you're not hearing all our failure stories, but to get to success, if you will, to get to effectiveness, you're going to have to go through some failure. And, and if that first failure knocks you out of the game, you see what I'm saying? There are no silver bullets in this. I really wanted people to understand that. There's a reason Jay and I uh, and Bill, you too, look at the gray hair, right? You see what I'm saying? Like we've lived a while and that, uh, Bill, back to what you said, we're trying to help you save time. Uh, It it doesn't have to take you 20 years, but it did take us 20 years to to get to this level. But what I want to encourage you is don't let failure knock you out of the game. Your passion uh, that, you know, the passion that God's given you to advance the kingdom mission, to be in full-time or co-vocational work, you've got to be prayerful, patient, and persistent. This kind only comes out, if you will, through prayer. You don't, uh, you know, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, right? You're going to reap in a different season than you sow. Do not lose heart. It is hard, no silver bullets, but if you'll stay on it and keep making adjustments, learn from your failure, set out again, eventually you get that flywheel moving and and that takes course uh, in in that process. So I just wanted to bring that up as a caution. Uh, But having said that, just like in church planning, you need a coach in this work. I 100% tell you, man, you need a coach or you're going to, it's going to take you 10 or 15 years to figure it out. That is if you can stay in the game that long. So that's not a sales pitch, 
whether it's myself, whether it's Jay, uh, there's other folks beginning to get in the game at a structural level. But please, please seek out help to avoid mistakes, work smart, gain experience and credibility. And again, it's all to advance a credible gospel in the 21st century. Mark, that's a really, really good word to end on. I appreciate both both the caution because, yeah, sometimes you can take away from our excitement. You know, we just start just the general excitement the three of us have about this, that that there are no failures in this and these could be silver bullets. The other thing I, I really like what you mentioned that we've, we've not we, we failed to mention that in this is really seeking the Holy Spirit in this and and really, um, you know, if not leading with that. Um, um, yeah, um, that's. And there, there's nothing more important that we could say uh, about that. But, man, I've enjoyed this time together. Um, we're Jay and I are going to be together again next week, uh, next week with Myron Pierce. And so we're looking forward to that time together. But Mark and Jay, thank you for investing your time for, for the work that you've done, just in, in your response to how the Holy Spirit's leading you. This I'm excited because I do feel like these things, this is something bubbling up. This is something that's wanting to happen in the U.S. church. And, and I'm excited about that. Appreciate you guys and your leadership in this way. So thank you. Thank you.